Welcome to Charisma Boost, Dumpstack Charisma's podcast, where we discuss all things tabletop, RPG, and Dungeons and & Dragons. A quick note before we get started, each of these episodes are pulled directly from our Twitch streams, so you may hear some random chimes from our alerts. If you'd like to watch this or any of our other campaigns live, you can do so on twitch.tv slash dumpstackcharisma. Hello, hey. hello. Welcome to Dumpstack Charisma uh, for tonight's episode of Charisma Boost. Uh, tonight we're going to be discussing various uh, tabletop, R- tabletop RPG topics. Um, we have some viewer questions that came through uh, via Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we're going to start there. Um, and then we're going to go to uh, some questions we have written down ourselves and or interaction from chat. So if you have a question, uh, maybe something pops in your head that you want to know about as we're talking about it, throw it in chat. Uh, we have a man behind the mirror that will uh, get that question to us, make sure that we have it. Um, and then we will uh, we'll get going. But first, uh, a couple of uh, um, announcements. Uh, we are participating in Extra Life, um, which uh, benefits uh, Children's Miracle Network. Um, specifically, uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, uh, we're going to be doing a 24-hour live stream on November 4th, um, playing all sorts of uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Um, we're not exactly sure what our lineup is, but we will be streaming uh, pretty much all day there, um, raising money for Seattle Children's Hospital. So um, there will be a, a link that comes through in chat. If you would like to donate now, you can, um, or you can hold all your pennies until November 4th and give us a, a fat donation uh, on stream, which we would appreciate. Uh, so again, uh, November 4th, um, uh, Extra Life will be playing Dungeons and Dragons all day. Um, another thing is uh, right now Twitch is doing uh, Cheers for Kids, uh, which means if you use hashtag charity in your um, bits uh, submission, uh, they will donate um, $2 for every 1,000 bits uh, to charity. Uh, and I read a crazy number earlier that they're multiple hundred thousand dollars uh have already been raised through that program um which is awesome um and that ends tomorrow so this will probably be the last the last stream in which uh of ours that you can participate that in uh and the last thing is uh it is currently september um that will uh run through october 2nd and during that period you can subscribe uh for 50 percent um of the normal cost so if it's a 499 sub you pay 250 and so on um, we get the, the same amount, but, uh, you get to pay half for the first month. Um, so that makes it an, an enticing month to, uh, get started. Um, that's all the announcements I have, uh, as of right now. Um, so let's get started. The first question we have, uh, comes, oh, we are skipping intro. See, let's not do that. Let's do some <laughs> intros. So, uh, we're going to start, uh, over here, my friend. My name is Dylan. Uh, I am Dumpsack Charisma's social media. Uh, so if you're talking to Dumpsack Charisma, you're probably talking to me on uh, The Awakening, our Tuesday's 5e campaign. I play Bindle Grelly Zoop, Pasco Eddie Donahue Dornbill. My bad. The man behind the mirror is hot garbage at his job. All right. On our Monday night stream, Hunt for the Ripper, our Star Wars Fantasy Flight stream i play cast Contar, and i've been playing D like four times a week for maybe about six years um <laughs> we have a problem and uh yeah <laughs> do the math mike uh, i'm just gonna throw out a random number and hope it's right um Hey, my name is Mike. Uh, I am Sebrantos in chat. Uh, I am in our Tuesday, um, the Awakening campaign as Varys, previously as Kreia, Rip Kreia. Rip. Um, Rip. 
I have been playing some form of RPG or tabletop RPG, I should specify, for probably about 15 years, question mark, somewhere around there. That's um, probably about right. Second edition, 3035 Pathfinder, uh, a custom weird percentile system, and recently fifth. And then, oh, Edge of the Empire by uh, Fantasy Flight. So. Uh, I am Robert. I host uh, The Awakening that uh, Mike and everyone else currently plays in. Um, yeah, I've been playing for, gosh, what feels like forever, but it's probably only about five years. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's me. I'm Robert. I'm a, I'm a dungeon master and a bard. Mm-hmm. I'm Paul. Um, I am the dungeon ma- game master <clears throat> for the Star Wars Hunt for the Ripper campaign. Uh, and I am Lyle, a ASMR paladin in The Awakening, which is, uh, as you just know, from this guy right over here. Uh, I've played um, tabletop games on and off probably since, I don't know, high school. So that's for me, like, I don't know, 15 years ago. <laughs> um and uh, I've dabbled in just about every single role play uh, from at least from D&D 3.5 on. I haven't done anything earlier than that, but I've done Shadowrun. I've done World of Darkness. I've done just a whole lot of different thing, uh, different things. So, yeah. I'm Nick. Uh, Andre Traylon in chat. I have. Oh, let's see. Um, I'm playing the two characters that uh, chat seems to want to die. Um, which I, I love the interaction with. Like, let's keep doing that. Um, so I'm playing Sonata in Hunt for the Ripper and Sunathir. <clears throat> Death of Sunathir. Uh, <laughs> and Sunathir in The Awakening. Um, I've been involved in some type of uh, tabletop D&D for 17 years, be it mostly behind the screen uh, as a DM. Um, and in role-playing in general for probably closer to 20. Um, so you're old. I'm the old man of the group. <laughs> um, but yeah, and that, that's been everything from second edition forward in D&D with the exception of fourth edition. Um, yeah, we all kind of just go Pathfinder, that. We Pathfinder yeah. fourth edition. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pathfinder did... Um, I've uh, played... Mage the Ascension, Vampire the Masquerade, um, a little tiny foray into GURPS, but not much. Um, so, yeah. All right. So, uh, we're going to go into our first question, which is uh, from Corodono. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, this is, came from Instagram. I also hope that you're in here watching. Uh, give us a wave if you are. Um, their question is, uh, quote, I am working on my first D&D campaign that I have ever DM'd, uh, DM4, and will be writing the adventure for my group to enjoy during Extra Life. Uh, are there any tips that you could give uh, to keep in mind as a DM to keep the story interesting? Um, so, uh, does anybody have any initial thoughts, um, on creating, uh, uh, a, a D and D game? Let's, let's start with Nick. Start down there. Mm. All right. Um, initial thoughts for D and D game, make sure that you have a picture of what your storyline looks like. Um, that is above all, above all else, something that you want to keep in mind. Where is the story going? And then an outline, not a railroad, not a hard path, but an outline of how you want to try to get the party there. 
Um, and that will give you the flexibility to adjust as they inevitably throw you a curveball. Um, and with those curveballs, be prepared to adjust to them. Don't stick hard and fast to something. Uh, allow them to be creative. Yeah, to build off of that, I think one of the really um, important and interesting things that can happen in a, in a campaign that you're playing is uh, make it at least to the players seem like the um, timeline is going to always be marching forward. So if the players just kind of want to hang out and go to a tavern and drink some stuff and, you know, party around, have like that dragon that you knew they were going to fight at some point attack the town, you know, and, and make it seem like, you know, there are consequences for the party and that makes it seem like they are um it gives them a reason to be engaged a sense of ownership and things like that so to, yeah. yeah yeah i think that's really good either of you have a uh, input on that fear is a great motivator and what i mean by that is i play um <laughs> particularly dif difficult campaigns are my forte uh Horror and, you know, lots of death and destruction and uh, putting the uh, party on edge and making them fear for their life is a great motivator. So uh, I'm a fan of that one. I would say that the most interesting things the players do will be, to them, the things that they choose to do. So whatever you're putting out there, um, I'm sure they'll enjoy, but the things they're going to remember are the things that they choose to do. So if you... Give them something to go after and kind of get out of their way. They'll have a blast with it. Mm -hmm. I have um, one more thing. To so do I. Yeah. Go, go for it, Paul. No, uh, he spoke up first. Um, one thing that can get very frustrating as to, to kind of a sub sublet to my uh, previous statement is make the characters or let the characters feel like they're progressing. You know, you, you've been in this horror campaign. You, they've been getting their shit pushed in for quite some time and let them feel their advancement um make combats that used to be challenging keep them at like the same level so that way they can feel their growth so that way they can feel like hey we're getting over this threat that way they're not always dying i would say my number one <laughs> advice for starting a new campaign especially as a new dm or new players is to um take some time before you actually start the campaign you don't have to give out any spoilers, but it's best to sit down with your players and talk about your sort of the setup that you're going for. So um, if it's low magic or high magic, you know, th there's all those basic conversations that happen when, when doing the whole setup for a campaign. But really, it's who are your characters and why what? do they care about what's happening? And this is your personal motivations and things like that. And get those really set out. Cause I think we talked about this in our last um, around the table that uh, character motivations are what's going to drive you forward. And if your character doesn't have motivation to go forward, then uh, it's really draining for other people to try and motivate someone who isn't motivated themselves. So did you have something to add? Yeah, if we've still got a little bit of time. Yeah, we have plenty of time. All Go right. for it. So, <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to add is kind of circling uh, back to one of my points. One of the pitfalls I fell into uh, as a new DM that I would caution you away from, as far away from as you can go, if the party or one of your characters in particular does things that you either don't expect or you don't want them to do, uh, restrain yourself from immediately responding no. 
It's something that I did a lot of in my early campaigns. I know Mike can attest to that. He played in a bunch of them. Um, And it stifles your party's creativity. It's one of the things that you want them to have. Because like Dylan was saying, the things they do, especially the creative, strange little things they do, are going to be the stuff that they remember. The stuff that uh, they remember the campaign for. Not necessarily just that character or just that session. But they'll remember the campaign based off of the small things that they did. And a lot of those are going to be things you don't expect them to do. So, Legendary Pants, thanks for the host. Uh, as it appears, we're in the midst of being raided. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, thank you. Make sure you click over to the channel, uh, join the chat, ask some questions. We're talking uh, role-playing games. Uh, right now we're talking about DMing your first game um, specifically for uh, a – Extra live stream coming up on, in November. Um, building off of uh, things that the guys have talked about, um, for me, I think uh, you got to start with whether you're deciding to homebrew a campaign or if you're running a module. Running a module, um, the first thing you want to do is read your module all the way through front to back. Uh, know what's coming in the book. I know it sounds obvious, but I have watched streams where the DM has not done that. Um, And if you are running a module, I would consider adjusting things in the game to incorporate your 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 players and their backstories um, so that it doesn't feel like somebody else's game. It feels like your game. Um, That said, if you're going homebrew, um, if you're just going for uh, kind of a one shot deal, I would uh, make a world or at least a city in an environment that they're in um, flesh that out. but don't worry about long-standing history or any of that. If you're doing for an on- ongoing campaign, I would maybe flesh out your world, what it looks like, where the towns are, kind of what the political process is. Um, start big and then kind of hone into where the characters are going to start. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you have to get every city in your world fleshed out with this is their their leader, their uh, commander, their colors, anything like that. This is hey, uh, this is the names of the 13 towns in this world, and that gives you time as a DM that as they get there, you can generate those towns. Um, Because there's nothing worse than feeling, like, overburdened um, by this this world they have to create. Um, It's 100% okay to steal names from other places. Um, (laughs) Ideas from anything, really. If you like something or you know that your player's really into Lord of the Rings like throwing little pebbles at that player will be helpful. Um, so I would, I would start there and kind of um, narrow it down. If you're building your own homebrew campaign, um, watch streamers. Um, and as a DM behind the table, really know as many rules as you can, but the first time that a rule comes into question, move on, make a ruling and move on, keep the game flowing Nothing rips a game down like opening a book 20 times and searching for that specific ruling. Just just keep it going. Keep it flowing. Um, and that would be my advice for a, a first time DM or GM. Yeah, I just want to uh, touch on one thing that he said one more time, which was uh, don't feel like you have to know absolutely everything about your own campaign that you're making at all times, because there is a certain amount of relevance that the world has for your party. And the things around them are the things that they're going to interact with. They don't really need to know what the population is of the city across the continent 
um, of a completely different region because it's just not relevant. So you don't have to generate those kind of things unless you really want to. Uh, so legendary pants thank you for the host uh thank you for all the follows that came in after that um lp stanford um lp zofor uh keys thank you for uh hosting really appreciate that uh kiorki thank you for the follow along with cassius uh camriel <laughs> the boonie lots of people uh javerbit uh really all thank you guys so much uh for the follow um you can read on our page about our campaigns when we stream those, if you guys want to catch those. Um, but we'll move right back into the uh, the topics, guys, here. Um, Love you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so the next question we have um, comes from the Grinning Frog on Twitter. Um, and again, if you guys have any questions, throw them in chat. We'll talk about them. It can be literally anything. Um, if you want us to go back to a topic, we can do that. Um, I suppose not literally anything, but... Uh, um, uh, so, uh, the grinning frog, um, asks, discuss pricing of self-published articles. For example, um, is less than the price of copy fair for something that took hours to write? Um, and they're specifically asking about, um, adventure modules, uh, like on DMs guild or drive through RPG. Um, and so I'll, just to, to preface on pricing, um, I, I use DMs Guild a lot when I DM to pull different things, uh, classes, um, and whatnot, third party. Um, an adventure module generally is about between seven and, and thirteen dollars, depending on um, the the noteworthiness of the the author. Um, whereas a adventure module in a book is forty to sixty dollars. Um, so that's a, a base point of where this topic comes from. Um, do you guys think that's a fair evaluation of somebody's content that they're putting up online? Or um, I kind of touched on this anecdote a little bit earlier, but um, I feel like making a module is kind of like writing, and writing is a lot like art. So I think that um, by transitive properties, creating a D&D campaign is uh, creating a work of art. And you should be paid for your time in a reasonable fashion. Um, so if you're going to draw someone a picture, you should be paid a reasonable amount for the amount of hours that you took to make that. Um, and I think that it, the same thing should apply for a, a D&D campaign module, whatever it is that you're building, should be well worth the amount of time that you put into it. And um, I just I think that's about it. Yeah, I I definitely agree that that it's art. It, it takes an, an amount of talent that I don't have, in my opinion, to to put a module down on paper in such a way that another person who does not know you can pick it up and run it with their group. Um, that's not a talent that I have. Now, uh, that said, those types of services aren't something that I'm particularly into i really enjoy the feel of homebrew um but i also understand why that market's there because there are a lot of people who either don't want to do homebrew or they don't have the time to sit down and build a world the same way that like the awakening is built or that some of my campaigns have been built or that mike has built um they it's it takes time and energy to do that and if you don't have them because there's something else going on and you want to be able to pick up and go, I 
I would almost encourage you to look at locations like that and look at modules in general, and not just the big launch ones, but ones from websites like those, where you can find maybe something that if you have an, an avid an avid player in your group who buys all the modules as they come out to you know learn about the new items or the new races or the new lore that they're launching, that you have something that they haven't seen before. Um, and I, I think that that's a great way to do it, and it helps get the name of the names of the, for those people out there who are uh, who are trying to get their art recognized. Right. Yeah. I know personally, I would be really flattered if people took uh, the setting that I had designed for uh, Hunt for the Ripper, and at least the world that I put in there, which is a custom made world. Uh, I think which is Imperia. If people uh, use that, I would be flattered to have that stolen from me and, and ripped off for someone's campaign. So. Do either of you guys have thoughts on it? Uh, I do. Uh, it, I would tell you it's really important to consider how much your time is worth and to not undervalue it um, because a lot of time goes in these modules and uh, there is a lot of pressure to kind of undersell them. Um, that goes both for writing modules, um, races, all that kind of stuff, magic items, and even... Uh, into art um, it's one of those things people want your work for as cheap as they can get it and they want to tell you that the exposure is worth it um, but you have to do your best to hold true to how much you value your time and I wish there was an easier answer to that uh, it's kind of an age-old question but um I think there's always been a large debate in creators versus the, the consumers. That, consumers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, Huge. You can look at music and there's a big yeah, kerfuffle music, about that. Uh, um, art commissions, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mike, did you have anything to add? Uh, I have next to no experience in this. Uh, I, in my free time, I just design stuff, so I've never really gone anywhere other than, like, TV shows that I've watched in the past for inspiration for stuff, so I'm a little out of my league on this question. I've designed I'll, I'll, a lot of I'll stuff. Pose a, I'll pose a question to you, Mike. Um, you've spent so much time designing characters and backstories and worlds and all this kind of stuff. Have you ever thought about making a module for someone else to run? Uh... I have made modules for myself to run. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, C campaign uh, was the first 75% of it was more or less completely written out kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I had never thought, didn't really realize that that was a thing to be hundred percent honest that you yeah. know, people just put their homebrew stuff up there and people paid money for it. Yeah. I didn't realize that was the thing. So, um, Reading uh, through new idea for a side hustle now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've got some files you can uh, edit together. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, like for example, uh, I wanted to point out some of the stuff that uh, LP Stanford had mentioned, which was uh, you know you could pull other things, other modules, other um, other other editions, things like that. In in general, you can look to different sources, kind of pull that together when you're when you're making a campaign um, and. Uh, I think that it's a great resource, and I think that you should uh, kind of actually both for both questions we've gone over so far is um, if it's a great resource and it has a lot of um, uh, 
productive value to designing it, it should be worth something. And you and people who put the time into that and make that for you should definitely uh, receive a little bit of something back for that. Uh, and it keeps them going, keeps them uh, in the game, and uh, keeps up interest. Uh, but also, um, I think that it's a great idea to diversify your sources of inf- inspiration. And uh, if you're trying to come up with something homebrew related, um, like, for example, uh, my Hunt for the Ripper campaign has a lot of different uh, aspects that I'm pulling from, um, different stories that I've read, uh, different uh, shows that I've watched. Uh, I'm sure that uh, actually most of you guys uh, could uh, uh, get a se- hopefully get a sense of, you know, the warrant is all from uh, from Hunt for the Ripper. So um, that actually blends into a, a question that we have written down here. Um which is where do you guys find inspiration um, for the game? Whether that's uh, the characters that you're playing or the the worlds uh, that you're creating for your players. Um, did you have one to start that? I'd love to start that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so for the characters that I play, uh, what I started doing when I would make a character is um, I incorporated a lot of my own personality into a character, and then I would take kind of just uh, one eighty on a couple of positions and be like, okay, well, this guy's going to be completely different from me in these scenarios. And I'd build a personality that way because it was easy for me as a beginning player to get into a character that was similar to me. Um, where I kind of draw inspiration from for characters now is more um, shows that I've seen, characters that I've seen on TV and movies, um, in some of the web comics that I read, things like that. Um, and then every now and then I'll see either a class in one of these books or a race in one of these books where I'm like, okay, well that looks like something that I'd really like to run. Uh, Sunathir, for example, is something that I saw the lizard folk. I read a little bit about the race and I was like, I want to play this. And it is one of the most challenging characters for me to play because I have to stay pretty deadpan in character uh, while I have these for, there's no other term for it. Jackasses <laughs> constantly <laughs> making jokes. <laughs> and it is so tough not to laugh um, and, while I'm trying to play my character. Uh, for my games as a DM, I borrow heavily from games that I've played. Um, I know that on the last episode of this, they, um, some of the guys talked about Exile. That is borrowed extremely heavily from a game that I played when I designed that campaign. Uh, interestingly enough, called Exile Escape from the Pit. <laughs> um, Funny how that works out. I know, right? Um, But your inspiration can be anywhere. Just make sure that if you you have that fire to play something or you see something, you go, I'd love to try that. Find a way to do it. Uh, Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I think that... uh, I kind of brought it up earlier, but for my Hunt for the Ripper... um, I was really inspired by Killjoy's, um, the sort of concept of um, having jobs, working them, you know, operating uh, as as sort of like a solo entity as a part of a larger group, uh, larger organization. Um, And then I looked at different sources that sort of synergized with that, um, like Shadowrun and different mercenary games and books that I've read and things like that. Um, and then also I had the Star Wars universe, which I was pulling from, uh, cause I'm for the Ripper isn't a Star Wars, 
uh, is in Star Wars, the universe, um, but it's of an aspect that is sort of not really shown in a lot of the main canon. And so it's kind of fun to explore. And what that does is that gives me several different sources that I can pull from for inspiration at any one time. And it just keeps things fresh or, or so I'd like to think where um, it could be something that I saw in Killjoys could be something that I saw on in the Star Wars comic that I read at one point, but it uh, having all of that inspiration gives me a lot of flexibility, I think, and I think that's really uh, a good way if you're homebrewing something. Well, you guys. For myself, uh, I pull uh, inspiration from uh, movies I've seen, TV shows I've watched, and books I've read, uh, books especially. And I feel like, well, my... Personal favorite genres like um, classic fantasy, swords and horses, uh, shit like that, which translates really well into D and D. And for my earlier characters, one of the things I did was I would look at one of the stats or one of the skills and kind of just ask myself, well, what would happen if I just boosted the shit out of this? What would that <laughs> look like? What would that feel like? How would that play? And that got me a lot of ideas early on. Um, these days, I tend to, first off, look at the characters I'm already playing. I tend to play multiple campaigns at the same time. And uh, just rule those out. Anything super similar. If I'm already playing a tank, I don't want to play another tank. If I'm already playing a rogue, I don't want to play another rogue. And um, I look for interesting kind of... Um, combinations of attributes. Um, one of my personal favorite things as evidenced by uh, Bindle in The Awakening is uh, tiny, goofy little characters that are super strong in one way or another. Um, I had a character in one of Robert Star Wars campaigns named Squee Bontiki, who was a demolitions expert, and he was a tiny, fuzzy little guy who just blew things up. And uh, I've always found that super funny. What about you, Mike? Where do you find your inspiration? Uh, books. Uh, I'm a lot like Dylan. I read lots and lots and lots and lots of fantasy. Um, a lot of my inspiration comes from books. Also, I mean, TV, anime in particular. I've had a lot of thoughts or uh, campaign ideas um, come from anime. Um, and yeah. And then I, and what I do a lot of times is I will browse uh, picture websites, Pinterest, um, DeviantArt, mm-hmm. even just Google Images. I'll type in like a theme, like I want to look at medieval warriors and I will find a picture and I'll be like, all right, I am designing a character based around that picture. Cause that's badass. Yeah. That looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I just kind of spitball from there and then I do the same thing with built or with uh, classes or builds. So I just kind of look at, I look at a class and I'm like, okay, what can I do with this class and this archetype? What kind of person would fit into that kind of lifestyle and then I build something from there and then I find a picture and all of a sudden everything comes together right so yep um, I, w- I agree with uh, Take 20 D&D uh, in chat there kind of borrow from everywhere um, that's what I tend to do um, although when I'm making a character that character is always going to be at least 25% barred in some way <laughs> uh, even if it's just personality I can make like a frontline fighter and he's still going to want to talk all the time um because that's what I enjoy as far as role playing is uh, out of combat communication with NPCs. I think are really fun. Um, that's what I what I go for. I, I'd actually want to touch on that real quick. Where um, I think one of the greatest sources of inspiration you can have is yourself. Uh, what do you want? 
what is it that you want to do? Mm-hmm. What do you want to experience and what do you want to get out of the game? I think that uh, you should you should never discount um, your own sense of self-indulgence when you're playing. Uh, so always have that in mind. All right. We're going to we're going to move forward to uh, Kiorki's question. Um, and they ask, how do you recommend dealing with power creep at later levels? Um, haven't had they haven't had many late level games, but they feel like the stakes get pretty ridiculous after level 12 ish um type of deal um so how do you guys combat that we'll start with uh, we'll start with nick because we've been starting down there makes sense yeah. <laughs> so uh exile ended at what 23rd level 23rd level 23rd level um, it 23rd yep okay. started at level five started at level five we ended at 23rd we played for way too long uh, <laughs> um uh, i made some mistakes and we're just gonna leave that one there um but as far as power creep goes um that campaign was 3-5 Pathfinder kind of hybrid, um, because when I initially started it, we hadn't really gotten full-fledged into Pathfinder, so I wanted to make sure that my players had kind of an option to grab from something else they were familiar with, and that they were going to have fun with as far as their classes went, and their feats, and all that stuff. Um, the power creep really depends on the system you're in. In Pathfinder, it was as simple as, hey, multiply some hit points. In 3-5, some of the higher level monsters, if you had a party that was geared appropriately for their level, some of the 3-5 monsters were just ineffectual unless you affected all of their stats. You had to up their AC, their AB, usually not their AB, let's be fair. Their AC, their HP, um, because otherwise combat's over and around. Um, And... One thing I would say with that is don't be afraid of combat being over and around. In some of these systems, particularly in 5e, uh, there's a lot of... There's not as much missing in combat as there used to be. So you may have a three-round combat, but every single round, somebody's getting hit, the monster's getting hit. There's a lot of action going on in it. And I think that that is really important. Um... But looking at monsters that are above the CR of your group, don't don't just look right around them. Uh, in the Awakening, what was that dragon? like? Nine, CR 14. 9 and 14? 9 and 14. Um, and we're a 6th level, I was 5th level at the time, 6th uh, level party. So look at things <laughs> and gauge where you're going to go based on what you believe your party is capable of from past experience. I think to add on that... Uh, know your player group as best as you can. One of the things that I knew that I could throw a CR9 and a CR14 dragon at the party is how much these guys have played the game and will inherently understand what fighting a dragon means simply just tactically on the battle map. They will know just from playing the game for so long that when they fight a blue dragon, it's resistant to what? No comment. Yeah. No comment. See? Uh, and you don't see Electricity. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things where I can put them in more danger with bigger monsters because I know that they as players can handle that and they can stretch their character's abilities to compensate for their lack of level. Um, it's also another thing when you get to that, that level to not be afraid to kill a character um, when you're up to 12, 12th level plus um character death is a great um storytelling element 
Uh, if a character dies, it's not always permanent. There's spells that can go on. There can be story elements that can bring that character back. Um, uh, prestidigitation is overpowered. Um, overpowered. Uh, but needs to be third level at least. Um, but don't be afraid to shy away from those story elements that can come from killing a character. Um, sometimes it can be really shocking when a player dies. Um, or if the DM kills people a lot, it can be, uh, another run of the run of the mill part of the game. Like if you guys have ever watched Chris Perkins DM, he kills players all the time. That's just one of the things that happens in his games. Um, whereas in our games, character death doesn't happen that frequently, um, unless it's me and then I die. Um, (laughs) but that's just how it goes. Uh, did you guys have something to add to that? Go ahead, Mike. I got distracted by character death and sticking my tongue out at Robert. We were uh, talking about dealing with power Robert. level beyond 12. I would actually have something on that Go if ahead. you want to take a second yeah. for that. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important about once you start getting above level like 6, 7, 8, up to 12 is that uh, don't be afraid to let your players feel like they're level 12 and above. Um, you know, when you're level 3 through 5, you're talented you're above you're cut above soldiers you're you're you know the something that people can depend on and things are out to kill you and things are swarming you and you're going through dungeons and you're fighting things that's pretty normal at level 12 and above you're pretty awesome at this point you're a paragon you're really awesome and you should be allowed to feel that way in the fact that maybe your missions aren't all about you just going in and defeating something or people running up to you and trying to attack you Perhaps it could be now people don't want to fight you directly. Now they want to get to the king that you're protecting or you are being hired to protect things that aren't level 12 and they need you for that reason. And so the culture can shift with your level. And I think that's really, really fun to play with. Come back to you. Be aware of the strengths and weaknesses of your party. Um, A notable, I guess, Example of this was Exile Campaign. For for a while, I DM'd Exile, um, and I created what I called the anti-party in order to create a very difficult fight for the party. And I made a group that was more or less designed to counter a lot of the aspects of the the party. Um, So know how your party typically fights and try to throw curveballs or design encounters to sometimes limit their strengths um that's a good way of uh the environment essentially or even specifically built characters to not necessarily be super powerful but just have a good way of preventing the boomstick from immediately killing your your high dps from immediately killing whatever monster you throw at them kind of thing so that whole person is fantastic at any level i would say in some ways you can tailor the storyline to the level that the party is at. If you are 15th level, you're probably not going out and fighting bandits. And if you have your party go out and fight some bandits that are also 15th level, it can kind of throw them off uh, because it doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) Um, I would also say in, uh, in some ways you can throw encounters at the party that 
aren't necessarily just kill this thing. And if you give them either moral moral dilemmas or timing dilemmas or uh, things that they can't just throw one big number at another big number and win, um, you can slow them down a little bit without, you know, undercutting what uh, what their characters are built to do. Um, the, uh, yeah, I had another thing, but I just lost it. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, let's move forward. If Continue. it comes back, uh, we'll, we'll jump back in there. Uh, Cora Barton had a question, which was, what was our what are our favorite types of characters to play, whether it's a race type, a class type, or a character type? Um, for me, uh, my wheelhouse is Bard, bar none. <laughs> um, even if I'm playing a Wookiee martial artist, there are Bard elements in that character, um, and that's just kind of how I how I roll. Um, race hasn't really stopped me before. Class hasn't stopped me before. It's there's going to be a bard type character one way or another. Um, that's just what I love doing. Um, so what about you guys? And, and his particular variety of bard too. I, yeah, yeah. That's 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 yeah, really true. Important. <clears throat> um, I have found uh, a passion actually since playing with you guys uh, for. Um, moral characters that have a bend to them. So there's like something about them that uh, makes them from being a complete like moral paragon. So uh, like being incredibly bloodthirsty or uh, really selfish or packed to an old, you know, an old one or something like that. Something about them that uh, makes them fun to be around, but uh, also a danger. Um, particularly those who are a master of some kind of weapon. I usually find that people who specialize in um, a katana or a spear or a bow are, are like being a um, an archetype for a bowman or a spearman or a swordsman or something like that is always a lot of fun for me. Nick, did you have a... Uh, my character archetype is pretty much rogue. I think anyone here will probably attest to that. Actually... I don't know if I've played a rogue in any of our more recent No, games. you've avoided it to I, try I, and play something new. <laughs> uh, that's fair. Uh, Sunathir, for example, is my first uh, venture into cleric in 20 years of D&D. So, it's your first, like, prime <laughs> caster, too. First primary caster, first cleric. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, I, I fell into the rogue wheelhouse for a, a lot of my playing time prior to getting behind the screen. Um, with uh, our group and with the rogue the things that I really liked about them was the the face skills the interacting with the NPC the type of stuff that uh, Robert equates his his bard personality with that kind of uh, permeates all of his characters that I want to I want to be involved in the dialogue kind of um, interaction um, I I really enjoy a specific little niche rogue build which is the strength and intelligence-based rogue. They just toss dexterity out the window. Um, Heavy armor, heavy weapon, tower shield, but I'm a rogue. Um, Because it's not something that a lot of people expect. Um, And it's been a lot of fun. It put a different twist onto the class that I really enjoy. Um, That's pretty much where I'm at there. Um, Did you have something else? I have something small, uh, something I should have mentioned earlier, is one thing I really like uh, about characters that I build um, that I really like to enjoy is a character that says or does as little as possible, but when he actually does something, 
it has the biggest impact. So, like, um, I'll have a character who doesn't really participate directly in a, in a large-scale conversation that's going on, except when he does, the whole Silent Bob thing comes in where it's like, okay, that was really impactful, and people kind of, like, stop for a second and think about yeah. it. Um, answering a Sand Dragon design, I really love the social aspect of the game. That's, that's why I'm here, fam. Uh, also, you can check out sandragondesigns.com uh, for dope <laughs> flasks. Uh, Press digitation. <laughs> Uh, Mike, what about you? What's your, your archetype? Um, Prestidigitation is my archetype, um, in case you guys couldn't tell that. Um, almost every character I ever make has Prestidigitation somehow. But um, I play the prim- primary casters, um, specifically Arcane, more often than not. Um, I like D&D because it allows me to be something I'm not, uh, both in personality-wise sometimes and in the you know ultimate cosmic power kind of stuff. Um, when I'm not bending the laws of physics and my will, um, I generally play duelists. So, and even a lot of times they'll have some kind of magic to them as well. So. For myself, I jump around. I play anything and everything. Um, as I said before, I look at what I'm already playing and don't do that. So, um, this question's always, uh, kind of a tough one for me to answer, but I would say that the thing that all my characters kind of share is uh, they're really good at one thing and then really bad at one thing. And so they tend to be a leader in their field, whatever their field is and have a big glaring weakness from those two points. I can kind of build uh, around. Um, So that's something that, um, all my random assortment of menagerie characters uh, have in common. One thing also that all of your characters have in common is they're really good at shit-talking people. (laughs) They're like the (laughs) best at that. Every single character you have, even if they don't talk, they're not social. When they do talk, it's like shade. I don't... (laughs) All of the shade. In any character that you play in D&D, a little bit of your personality is going to come out. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's so Shade master over here. Uh, While we're talking about characters... Uh, let's talk about the cheesiest or most quote unquote broken thing you have done within the rules uh, or slightly outside of the rules. <laughs> like how the people just suddenly wilt. Uh, Who are the power builders in this room? <laughs> so, um, cheese, cheesemongering. Let's. <laughs> so, second edition had an item called Shadow Claw. Um, and Shadow Cloth let you move from one shadow to another shadow. Um, and it didn't have to be all of you. Um, so I had been playing a character that had a photographic memory that I'd gotten the DM to give me a finite amount of time that I could remember perfectly a setup of things. And I got a hold of this particular item and I used it to uh, rob bazaars after we'd been out of town for a day. Um, so good luck pinning it on me. I'm yeah. not there. I literally wasn't there. Um, I also used it to attempt and convince him, uh, the DM that is, that I could face the part of my body that the shadow of the incoming sword stroke was in could go out as the sword got there and then back in behind it. So it would pass through me uh, without doing any damage. Um, that got vetoed. That did not work. I did get a 
flat bumped my AC. But she, <laughs> uh, any, anything that you would give me that had some weird niche application, I would find a way to use it in ways that I wasn't supposed to use it. The adamantine butter knife. The adamantine butter knife. I'd turn it into a lock pick, to be fair. I'm just going to shove it through the lock in this door. Right. Um, I I don't have enough experience with building uh, characters uh, as far as, like, looking at the rules and, and, and maximizing it, min-maxing it, if you will. Um, I did play one character that I really enjoyed. His name was Alatron. Um, he was specifically built for a certain campaign where the monsters had really high AC. And I uh, <laughs> played a rogue who never hit, ever. Never hit. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to play a character that will always hit. And so I played a samurai, uh, which is uh, a specific type of samurai called a sword saint. And so samurai can challenge people to give a boost to their attacks. Sword saints, when they attack the first time in a round, get a bonus to that doing EA Jutsu. Uh, and then I just stacked a whole bunch of different feats to make the first strike really, really powerful. And then I had a helmet, which could cast spells by itself and would cast true strike. So every time I would swing, my AB would be like easily 50 something. And it's like, you know, like, make AC higher than that, damn it. <laughs> and uh, Well, that was good for Allie. It sucked for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> I could hit stuff. Um, and then the whole point was I only needed to hit once, and I was doing upwards to 200, 300 damage with a single sword strike. Just... Mind you, we were 15th plus level at this time. So yeah. <laughs> there, was, there were a lot of options as far as feats. Um, to talk about just, like, I don't generally break characters uh, as far as builds go, um, much like some of the other guys here. Uh, actually, one of the first complaints I had when I was said, hey, we're going to start streaming on Twitch and we're going to be playing a 5e campaign that I'm that, that I'm going to DM. Everyone was like, yeah, but there are no options in 5e. How am I going to break a character uh, with with no options? All uh, I want to play say is a ranged paladin. A yeah. <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm creative liberties and the storytelling, um, but uh, what I like to do with characters to to generate some cheese is have a crazy off the wall idea um, and explain to the DM how I'd like to do this idea while uh, using aspects of my character. So, like in our Hunt for the Ripper game, I've had Fur do numerous things um, already, which are, I'm a high-strength character, uh, this is the stupid shit that I want to try and do, please kill me, daddy, uh, type of thing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's kind of what I try and do, is uh, generate things that there aren't... the daddy? Yeah, generate necessary rules for... Um, uh, and try and get a cool story element out of that. Um, that's that's how I try and try and cheese it. Mike, <laughs> can I just leave that mistakes have been made? <laughs> Mike's the biggest power gamer here. Um, I would say Severantos from Exile is, is yeah. Is, it's the only one I've experienced, but it is so memorable. Sev in Exile was everything I could do to get every stat to AC and have the highest possible avoidance. Let's just call it that right there. Uh, monks, mages, mage armor, uh, feats, I everything, fighting styles. Dexterity, wisdom, charisma, and int 
twice to AC. <laughs> so on top of that, there was the swift blade, which when I'm hasted, which is always, I just have a 50% flat mischance. Oh, and mirror image. Good luck hitting that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, crane wing. Uh, one, the first that hit attack that hits automatically misses before that they fix before that. They eroded it. Yeah, yep. before they eroded it. Before pre errata and then you know deflect arrows, which is the same thing for range attack. So it was literally, I want to say there was a twentieth level NPC that was like a flurry master that had like a it was. Seven levels higher than Sev and had like a 0.025 chance of successfully hitting it around. <laughs> Something like that. There was mistakes were made. <laughs> it was fun, but should not be done. I build a lot of weird shit, uh, especially in Pathfinder. But since we were talking a lot about weird builds, I'm going to go with uh, something a little different. And uh, this occurred in Exile. Um Characters were created in groups, and each group got a magic item given by the DM, uh, which were almost never <laughs> oh, used. <laughs> and uh, my group got Marvelous Pigments. Oh my gosh. And Marvelous Pigments allow you to draw something and it becomes real, basically, but there's only... Up to a thousand GP of item. Of, of, of mundane uh, things. There are certain things you can make it out of. Uh, this came into play while we were sieging a fortress that had a nigh-impregnable wall and gate. And what my character did was he uh, turned invisible and drew a thousand gold worth of sawdust, if you can imagine that, uh, in front of the gate. Sawdust. Uh, which a is, lot of sawdust. Which popped it up in the air and ignited it. Uh, if you've ever seen a powder combustion bomb, uh, look it up on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> Nick, uh, to his credit, bomb. uh, let it happen. Uh, we went through it. <laughs> that Things happened, happened. And you let it happen. Um, that he, happened. he laughed and then he said, uh, it's not going to happen again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one's probably my favorite. To be fair, uh, Bjorn's character had to make a saving thrower die and then had to utilize a once per session class ability to make that throw again because he failed it. True. Uh, or we would have. That's it. just because he's dumb, though. Well, he I ignited mean, your bomb with a touch spell. Yeah, he didn't realize. <laughs> touch spell. I'm like, yeah. are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to do that? And he's like, eh, I've already said I was going to do it. So boom. <laughs> I, I think he, I think he like literally flew into the to the next region, <laughs> and he woke up like in the mountain range where Long he was found by barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna we're gonna move forward on the topic here, um, and this one uh, I think might be somewhat controversial uh, in its nature. Oh, yeah. oh gosh! Um, and that loins. the topic is around electronic devices at the table. Um, as uh, we all have our phones out as we're monitoring Twitch chat, um, but while playing the game, that can bring up uh, issues. Uh, I think we've all been in games where people have been playing mobile games while while role play is happening. Uh, or scrolling Twitter or Facebook, trying to keep up with the news. Uh, but at the same time, there's people that uh, have their spell books there. Um, They're looking up on the SRD uh, facts about their character and their build so that when it comes up, um, they know what's going on um, and what their character is, how to utilize this ability. Um, so it's it's gone both ways in our group. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on it? Uh, Exile's actually been played both ways on this one. Um, when I first started Exile with uh, this group, I think Mike was the 
yeah, Mike's the only one here who was in the, the first run uh, with this group of folks. Bjorn was also there. Um, and it was kind of before the everyone has an electronic. Like, we had a laptop. It was my laptop as the DM so that I could access my notes. Um, I saw that laptop. It weighs like 12 pounds. <laughs> um, but uh, the the electronics at the table rule, um, I really came down on a couple of times because I had a lot of people, like, like Robert was saying, playing games on their phone, uh, playing games on their laptop, just zoning out and looking at art. Um, and to me... Um, as a DM, one of the most disrespectful things you can do is be distracted while I'm trying to, to, to run a campaign and to tell a story with my players. And as a player, one of the most disrespectful things I think you can do to me is to not be paying attention when I am the active player. <laughs> I pay attention when you're active. You should be paying attention when I am. Um, that way you can feed off of each other. And in some of the, the awakening um, I may be looking at my spell book because I, I am that guy that's got his spell book set up on his phone because I found a really neat app for it. Um, but I'm still paying attention to what's going on near me. And that's the important piece with the electronics. If your group is distracted, I'd encourage you to ban electronics at the table. If your group is still on point while they have them, let them use them. If you catch people playing games or zoning out, Talk to them about it. Have that discourse. Um, but it is a, a huge kind of almost on or off topic. It, it doesn't seem to have a lot of in-between. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, use it responsibly. And uh, I think that the biggest thing that I'm going to take away from is, is something you said, which is where paying attention is a matter of respect. And when the DM is talking, uh, the most disrespectful thing you could do is, uh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, say, say, what? I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. What, what, what's happening? Can someone repeat what just the narrative just did? I, I wasn't paying attention. You know, like it's, yeah, it's awful. Um, for me, I think our group, since we started streaming our games, um, any device issues are completely gone because everybody's more in a, in a performance mindset than a bunch of friends sitting around a table telling a story mindset although we're still doing that but we're more uh conscious of the fact that we are we are entertainers in that moment we've got them um and uh it's not, it's not just about disrespecting each other at that point it's, yeah exactly it's, you know, exactly um uh, well we still do have our phones out to, to monitor chat um especially the dm might not be paying attention to chat as they have so many things to focus on um we we value chat interaction in our streams um we think it's a really good part of what we do. Um, so, but as far as the issue, it hasn't, it hasn't, it's subsided, I guess. is. It's something that we suffered from, but I think that uh, we've just learned how important it is for us all to be paying attention to one another. Agreed. Do you guys have thoughts? Yeah. Um, I mean, you have to want to be there. I mean, if you're playing games on your phone, like, like it's been said, it's disrespectful, but I mean... It's one of those things that I I am one of those people who will always have electronics out. And 99% of the time, I'm not perfect, but most of the time it will be relevant to my character, the game, whatever it may be that's up on my phone or my laptop. You have to, as the DM, trust your players to, you know, if they want to play, then they want to play. They should be paying attention. Um, and I personally have never said no electronics um, just because I've, don't want i mean we're all here to have fun if 
I guess if I'm not keeping you well entertained with my story, then okay, do your thing, I guess. But why are you here? If I think at that point yourself? it would it would require yeah. a conversation between the player and the DM. Saying, well, why are you here? Question is yeah exactly where that one goes. Yeah. So yeah, I don't have a ton more to add on. I think we've covered it pretty well. But I yeah. would say um, nothing kills my enthusiasm more than if it seems like nobody gives a crap. Um, and if people are paying attention and interacting, um, it really gives you momentum in role playing. Um, all of the best times, uh, that I've had and all of the most interesting things that my characters have done or said have been when they are, um, interacting with another player, um, bouncing ideas back and forth and, uh, riffing off of each other. And without that, um, it's pretty tough to get going. And if you have someone who is blatantly just not paying attention, it really, you know, uh, it kills you. Yeah. Um, that said, I uh, I would say know your players um, and who they are, what kind of people they are. Um, if you are playing in a group um, like ours, we've all known each other for quite a long time. Uh, we're all adults, even though we don't seem like it. <laughs> and uh, we should be able to be trusted to uh, play our part in the game and pay attention. Yeah. Um, but if it becomes a problem, it has to be dealt with. Yep. Agreed. One thing just to add, and it's a, something that I've noticed over time, people are more likely to be distracted by electronics in bigger groups. When it's, as the DM, when it's harder to keep everyone engaged at the same time, I mean, if you, if the party splits and they, party enters town, they all split and go everywhere. Um, the DM hits people one at a time because you can't really, it's hard to have conversation with whole people at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, when there's only four people to go through, you're not away from any player for too long. It's easy to keep everyone engaged. When you have 10 players, well, it might be an hour before someone is even talked to. And it can be very hard to keep someone's attention for that period of time. So one thing that's, I think, very nice is keep your group smaller if you can. And then the problem seems to have solved itself. Uh, Something that Dylan said that I I definitely really agree with is... uh, that one of the things that I really enjoy when I'm role-playing is when I get a reaction out of other players and they engage with me on something that I've done or respond to something that I've done. And it really makes it, you know, it, it, it makes me feel like I'm a part of it, that what I, it encourages me to continue doing that and things like that. Like, for example, uh, a really touching moment, which is very weird, is uh, Lyle is a character who's always kind of been out of the group and not really had his sort of like niche that he did. Um, But he spent some time as a sheriff's deputy. And so when it came to matters of law, he was surprisingly on point with what he knew. And there was a moment where the party just kind of was like, wow, that's oddly wheelhouse of you. (laughs) And it was really fun. Uh, One last note on that. Um, Technology is great uh, in D&D. There's things like D&D Beyond, uh, which are out there where you can literally have your character sheet digital. Um, So that is an element. Um, Another thing is getting um, there. There are always options for not having electronics at the table. Um, So in our 5e game, we have all of the spell cards available for every class. So although Nick likes to use his his uh, spell um, app. Uh, on his phone, 
he has access to the spell cards if he wants to build his little spell deck um, and go from there. Um, but we're going to move forward from that topic. Um, I saw a question in Same chat. Yes, uh, which was, how do you deal thing deal with things like, uh, I was already in a rage or I was stealth. Um, do you give the player a few chances or et cetera? Um, I'm going to start on this one because uh, I have a couple different thoughts on this. Uh, the first one is... Generally, I don't care uh, if their character is a known rager or a known person to stealth. That's fine. Um, I don't expect a character to say I'm going to stealth all the time, but that's just my DM style. Um, I like to play fast and loose with it. Um, that and that type of argument, I think, can take momentum from the game uh, where momentum is uh, important. Um so that's kind of my initial stance on that is uh, roll with it. Um, another thing we've done in the past is uh, institute situations where X player will say, at the start of combat, my first action is going to be to rage always. This is when we enter combat, that's my character's in instinctual reaction is to rage. Um, I know we've had a couple instances where we've had things that just proc automatically. I'm uh, always power attacking unless I exactly. say otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we'll pop over here. I have a couple really interesting uh, pieces with this. Mike, I'm going to tell a story about you. <laughs> the um, lantern? Yeah, the lantern. Uh, so the first iteration of the Exile campaign. Um, first session were, ever. This was, this was what? My first session ever. Yes. Uh, they were investigating a some mines that had kobolds in them. And Mike have, had a lantern with him and decided he was going to go stealthing around to see if he could see where the, the kobolds were coming from, where the noise was coming from. Uh, Mike never put the lantern out. Um, so when he got spotted and they started running over to him, uh, the reaction that I initially got was, but I was stealthed. How'd they see me? And I was like, but you didn't put out your lantern. So little, little things to the players you can do now. Would it be fair to assume that the character would know to put a lantern out? Uh, sure. I mean, and to Robert's point, it can cause argument between DM and player when you say, no, you can't do that. Um, most of the time, I completely agree with Robert on if there's time for combat to happen, the time before it happens, let the party have their, their little um, situationals the way they want them to be. They have time to get them that way. If they don't, if they're ambushed, if there's some type of sneak attack, um, make sure that the president is set with your party out of character before things happen. That, hey, these are the si these situations may come up. If they do, here's here's how it's going to work. Um, there's there's not an opportunity for it, and a lot of times that's a given. Uh, but if you have a player who makes a habit of this, talk to them about it. It, I'm going to keep circling back to that talk to him about it thing yeah. because that is, that is huge <clears throat> if you want to run a successful game is making sure you're communicating with your players. And that's where this one I think is going to lie mostly is with communicating with the players to let them know if they're doing that, hey, we're going to let it go this time. But, you know, next time you really need to let me know that you were stealthed while you were traveling, not after you got ambushed by raiders. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, it's so hard for me to keep all of the, the things I want to say together, but I think one of the most important ones that is for kind of a cultural thing when playing a tabletop role play is that you should always have a, um, a disposition of this would be fun for the story. This would be fun for the instance. This would be fun for the anecdote. Not necessarily this is how I should beat the game. Um, so, for example, if it's a question of whether or not you were stealthing on the trail and you're attacked by goblins, like, if you say, is it possible that I was out, like, peeing in the woods and I came back and saw that the fight was going on, could I could I then start combat stealth because, like, like I came back in and something weird was really happening or something like that? And you're like, haha, that would make a really fun uh, instance to play off a very fun story element. I think that that's what people should really be aiming for first, and maybe not in those specific that that specific example. But um, we're not here to to one up people. We're not here to to defeat the DM. We're here to you know have a fun story and uh, enjoy ourselves. Um, the second thing that I wanted to bring up on this, if I can remember everything, is if you have something that's uh, integral to the way your character is played. So like, I've designed them this way. They're going to act like this all the time. They're going to always have this out and present. Establish that early. So um, if you're like, I am playing a knight and the knight always is standing at attention and always kind of broadcasting this intimidating aura, I want it to be known that wherever he goes, he's looking people in the eye and he's, you know, puffing up and stuff like that. And that's, I'm not going to say he does that every time. That's just what he does. And so that way, when it comes into this thing of like, oh, I didn't see you night there. I didn't think you were being intimidating. It's like, no, I'm always like that. So, yeah. Any of you guys have thoughts? My job as a DM is to make sure my players are having fun and to tell a cool story. Um, back in my early DMing, I would, I was kind of like Nick, where it would be, hey, you had your lantern out. Sorry, bro. This is happening. Um, it's, as I've grown as a DM, I've found it's much more generally enjoyable for the players. You're, you're not, you're not trying to beat the players, which is how I think I used to think of it is I want to make combat that's challenging that can beat the players. No, no, that's not the idea. You're supposed to make it fun and challenging, um, but you're not there to beat them. So I was stealth though. Oh, okay. Um, tell me that next time and let's make that stealth roll and see if he sees you. That kind of thing. So that's good alternative. Um, yeah. I think uh, it's kind of situational um, because there are times when uh, the players really need to be specific with what they're doing. Um, if you are traveling down a road and you get ambushed by uh, bandits or whatever, and the player says, Oh, well, I, I was stealthing, um, and it's kind of a reaction to what's happening. Um, I would run with it uh, the first time, but talk to him about it uh, because you don't want to get into the habit of uh, kind of retroactively doing the right thing um, because characters failing is uh, an important part of the game and it can be a really fun part of the game because yeah. it leads to new and interesting things to happen to them. <clears throat> if you saw our last stream with the elevator shaft is a perfect example. Lift, lift, lift. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I would say is if it makes sense for the character, um, I would accept that that's a, a thing that they do. Um, if you, I don't know of a system that does this, but if you have a system that uses ammunition, 
a soldier is going to be reloading in between fights. You know, um, if you are delving into a dungeon, the rogue's probably going to be stealthing. These are things that you can kind of uh, assume if the character has kind of set that up. Um, if you have a rogue who is, hey, I have no idea what I'm doing with adventuring, but I'm just kind of really dexterous, you know, maybe you can't assume that. Uh, or if you have a rogue that is, I've been dungeon delving for 20 years and this is my expertise, you can accept that, you know, whether or not the player remembers to do it at the time, that's something the character should be doing. Yeah, they're actively probably perceiving, they're actively stealthing, that kind of thing. Just yeah. simple assumptions to make, yeah. Uh, just a reminder, you can uh, throw your questions uh, into chat and we can uh, take a look at those, get those answered up. Um, moving on topics here. Um, Actually, oh, you, Keyes brought up a different, a uh, decent point in chat that might be worth circling to. Uh, what was that point? Uh, going back to how uh, to have a good game uh, is to be able, being able to engage uh, each player as a participant um, and one person kind of taking over. And I think kind of dealing with that might be a yeah. decent thing to, to touch base. Yeah, on. absolutely. Um, I'll be the first to admit that I am uh, kind of a dominant role player uh, when I when I play, uh, being that uh, not that I'm going to tie anybody down or anything, but that uh, I I like a fair share <laughs> of the of the RP action, um, and I know I have gotten feedback uh, before that is. Hey, you're 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 going too hard on the game. You're role playing a little bit too much. Um, you're taking opportunities for other characters to shine, um, and I think that's uh, happened mainly in games with larger player groups, mm. um, for sure. Where there's um, you have to make the the pie go can definitely exacerbate things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can yeah. you have to make the pie go further? <clears throat> I think um, the a classic example of that, not to cut you off, is the uh, the rogue that goes on a scouting mission and then tries to solve the entire dungeon by themselves. It happened once. <laughs> Wasn't it happened that great? <laughs> just you, but he wasn't even in that campaign. Yeah. So him. Unless we're thinking no, about... No, he's talking I'm, about I'm the not talking rogue. just about the Paladin Rogue. I'm talking I'm, in general. The Rogue man. that goes it off... It did not happen just once. Tries... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I obviously have a lot of this pointed at me here right now. So I'm gonna, I wasn't I'm trying to do it. that. That's I wasn't fine, trying to fine. do that. It happened. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so uh, it's just one of those things that we're all here to have fun and uh, everyone should get their moment to shine. Yeah, um, I want to touch base on the couple of things that happened there, because um, um, scouting ahead is one thing. Um, as a player, there has to be an understanding that while I may be scouting ahead, I'm not going to get the two hour dialogue with the DM that the, the whole party was going to get when they arrived there by myself to be able to engage with it alone. Uh, that should never be your expectation. Um, in one of Paul's campaigns, I played a, a dex-based paladin. It was basically a rogue. Um, and I did exactly that. I went to Scout a City, and I saw the boss, and I decided to fight them by myself. Uh, and that was that was a bad move as a player. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will flat out admit it. That was, that was a wrong thing to do first as a player. Um, and as a DM, the, the tough part to it also is knowing when to transition to that next player, specifically in large groups. Um, a lot of my DM experience is with six plus players and that's, that's a, a mess. Um, you have to be really good with getting, um, getting transition from one player to the next to make sure everybody has time to play. 
because everybody's there to participate. Nobody should be at your table to be a spectator unless that's literally their job. Like if you have somebody behind the camera running the camera for your game, like they should be a spectator, but nobody at the table playing should be a spectator. And it's your job as the DM to make sure they're not. All right. Uh, Does anybody else have anything to add there or can we move forward? I think we covered it. Okay. Uh, So we have a question from chat from uh, tricky walrus who asks, uh, uh, my group consists of a lot of new players um, with really only themselves and the DM having experience in D&D. Uh, there are four new players in this play group. Um, any tips on getting players that just want to kill things more RP uh, oriented um, and generally be less murder hobo-y? Nick, go for it. Um, the the way to get people to be less murder hobo-y, actions have consequences. Hey, you roll into town, you decide to, to kill somebody. Maybe the guards start investigating. Maybe, you know, the quest that you were going to be given, uh, maybe they hold back on some of the reward for it because, like, you guys are acting real shady. Um, there's there's a lot of ways to do that kind of thing to help ease them into it. The way that I eased players in um, in my first campaign uh, that I ran here was the... Um, I, I had everyone design a quirk their character in addition to your general character creation you had to uh we used the second edition backgrounds to give some flavor to the characters and we had people design uh, a quirk into their character um we had a a dwarf fighter that was illiterate he he literally could not read (laughs) he could not read or write um we had an uh our rogue was mortified of spiders um, so needless to say, the little Dryder statue and the drown encampment they came across was hilarious. Um, but little things like that, if they're brand new, give them a way to put something new in there that they need to engage with. Um, I like it as an aspect of the, the character's personality, have them create something there that is outside of their norm, outside of their player's personality. Um, I would say one of the things uh, that has been frustrating for me in campaigns I've played before, not so much with this group, but previous ones, uh, were, um, were people who flagrantly murdered everything around them. Uh, so they killed the barmaid, they'd kill the, the barkeep, they'd see someone in, in walking in fancy clothes down the street, and then they'd murder them and all that stuff. And I think that... Um, We've already touched on consequences, you know, actions have consequences. Super important in a campaign. Super important. But I also think that uh, if you have a problem with your NPCs being um, sort of at risk by your players, uh, create a sense of... uh, um, I don't really quite want to say empathy, but try to make your NPCs and your um, non, like, these are monsters meant to be hunted and killed... Uh, uh, make it worthwhile to the party not to do that. So make the uh, NPCs nice. You know, don't don't give murder hobos an excuse to get upset and kill someone for fun. You know, uh, have someone genuinely go out of their way and say nice things about the, <laughs> about the players. You know, like uh, so th- so that way their tendency is you know do I want to kill this guy? I do want to kill this guy. But he's been really nice to me and he buys me drinks. Like, why would I kill the guy that buys me drinks? You know, like, why would I do that? So it's it's really troublesome if you have people who 
just want to slaughter everything. Clearly he has money, and I can buy my own grapes. Do <laughs> <laughs> you guys have uh, thoughts? Yes. Uh, I would say, first off, you got to understand that uh, what the players want to do is what they're going to do, and it's tough to change people. Um, but you can encourage them in various ways. And uh, the first way to do that is communication. I think if you set expectations ahead of time in your campaign that you want things to be um, role-play focused, you want to uh, not just run around killing things, that's a great place to start. Um, Another good way to do it is to really talk to your players uh, and have them talk to each other about their characters, Mm. uh, who they are, why they're here, what their backstory is, and most importantly, their motivation. I think that's um, good advice for nearly every aspect of, of D&D. Yeah, fair enough. Yes. Um, if you have characters that are stats on a sheet of paper, um, then what the players are going to want to do is use those stats. Uh, if you have characters that are thought out, they have backstories, they have feelings and motivations, then the players are going to want to play to those motivations, or at least have the option to. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that's probably the, the best way that I can give you to encourage it nothing that really hasn't been said before i really like the i mean think of it this way you're a per, you are playing a person in a world why would your character just willy-nilly start killing things how does this make sense in a person's you know well-being in the world being known as a murderer you're gonna get murdered if you know guards are gonna come down to you something yeah. bad's gonna happen yeah try to play as though you are a person get that mindset that you know, while there should be some meta, you know, why am I going to go out adventuring when I could die and just make money here? Okay, put that aside a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> act like a person and play a person. Your character is a person in this world. I think uh, to go on what, what other people have said a little bit, uh, there are two ways that you can react as a DM uh, in-game. And that's uh, Paul's suggestion of being uh, overly nice uh, the other way to go is to punish them for their actions. Um, there's n- never not a good time to put a character in, in jail. Bartenders um, <laughs> are always super powerful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and as far as like introducing new players into the game, I think one thing that in this day and age, uh, new people to D&D have access to examples of D&D. Um, it's not just the stats on paper that you can go to and go, this is my character. You can also uh, show them Critical Role or Our Stream or Maze Arcana and see how other groups are playing D&D that is not just uh, murder hobo, murder hobo, murder hobo uh, encounters back to back to back to back to back. Um, it's you can show them how the Vox Machina crew can't open a door and how thrilling that and entertaining that encounter can be <laughs> where they're not fighting anything. They're literally just trying to open a door. Um, and I think that that kind of aspect of D and D gets lost, especially on new players, because there's no one to show them the way. Um, so m- maybe introduce them to some of that type of thing where there are combats, but there's also really strong role playing um, that takes place and then have that discussion. Again, it all comes back to communication um, let them know, hey, I'd like to have more of that in our game. Can you help me in the game bring that bring that to the forefront? Um, Nick, did you have something to add on top? I think Keys also mentioned a really good one here in chat as an example. Puzzles versus combat. 
to solving a mission or solving a uh, getting a hold of an item or a quest ending um, task don't always have it be something that has to be killed. Yep. Uh, because once the if the party starts associating um, every mission means I have to kill X Y Z, that's how they're going to measure accomplishment. It's going to mm-hmm. be by well, what did we kill this session? What did what did we kill for this mission? Um, you can vary that up with puzzles, with trap-filled halls if you have a talented rogue or a not-talented rogue because it's just as much fun when the, <laughs> when the rogue goes, I don't see any traps, and then the fighter gets hit with it and goes, I said I didn't see any. Um, I've had that happen in a couple of my games. It's great. Um, but it's, it's one of those other things, too. Remove killing from the equation of success, and the party may start to equate something else with success mm-hmm. uh, one last thing when you're granting experience most people think killing things is experience story rewards and accomplishing other things can also grant experience i know for instance a lot of and i'm going to go off of video games here a lot of video games give you experience congratulations you unlock that chest here's 50 experience that kind of thing reward in multiple ways, you can reward non-combat things. And a lot of players play for the experience, more or less, in the loot. Reward as such. So, All right. We're going to have one last question here before we wrap up. Um, this is actually one of the questions that Dylan proposed earlier, uh, which is, uh, do you lean towards a sandbox-style game um, or more of a direct story style um, where there's... Um, points along the plot that have to be hit versus players just in a world um what do you prefer as a dm and then what do you prefer as a player um and then kind of how do you balance character choice versus railroading if you're going on a more linear linear scale um let's actually start opposite here with dylan um as it's uh, a question that he brought up dylan what do you feel i generally prefer a really strong story and um so I am pretty comfortable with things happening, uh, regardless of you know what my actions are. Uh, so if the DM says well, the town's going to get attacked by a dragon, and they do that, you know, regardless of the character's choices, I'm pretty okay with that. I've never really been concerned with uh, railroading, as it were. Um, the style of game. And the style of DMing that I really like is when the DM chooses the objective and the players choose how they achieve that objective. Um, I think it's a good balance. Um, and I like to know as a character what I'm heading towards. Because one of the things that really kills me and kills my um, enthusiasm and stuff is if I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. If kind of walk out the door and it's like hey what do you want to do today and all the party kind of looks at each other it's like what do you want to do so uh i like to i like to know what i'm getting into and then have the opportunity to take whatever skewed weird niche um off the wall uh way to achieve that objective that i've got as a dm i play or I build more of the railroady style campaigns. I'm going to come out and say that. Um, a lot of times when I'm designing a campaign, I almost write it like a book. Here, this is how I envision 
the part that this is going to go. This entire campaign, I mean, there are going to be things that are going to go off. The players will have their choices. They can do what they want to do. But this is the general timeline slash story I have in mind. And then I throw the players in it. I'm like, okay, I will give you gentle pokes and prods and sometimes not so gentle pokes and prods that this is probably the right course of action. You should probably go investigate this murder, but let the party do what they want to do. Um, because nothing kills a party more than you must go do this, and if you don't do this, then I will find a way to make you do what I want you to do. It stifles creativity. As a player, on the flop side of that, I can do either. I mean, I have a lot of fun with both of them. I like a very direct story where we are marching towards a goal, and that goal is in sight, and we know what we have to do, and let's go do it. I like that a lot. But at the same time, I can have fun, you know, uh, one of our um, big groups where it was a little more sandboxy was Reunardu. And what we did is we had little story segments. And in between each story segment, we had two or three months of downtime. That was a very good way to have a sandboxy feeling where your character can accomplish things in the world besides the actual missions. Like build a tower, have a castle, have a small retinue of soldiers mm-hmm. to themselves, that kind of thing. Um, led to a lot of development sandboxy kind of feeling and storyline feeling so. uh for me as a player i love storylines and will go towards them uh every time that they're put forth um sandboxes i kind of have the same issue that dylan has whereas where's the motivation for me to do anything like i know who my character is and he's just going to do whatever that character would do um so without some form of direction it's really tough uh, on the flip side, I've tried DMing a sandboxy type game, um, and have struggled uh, in that in that campaign. Uh, either a keeping up with the players in the direction they want to go in, um, or having a direction to go in at all, uh, where you just kind of have a big world. It can be kind of daunting if they choose to go in a direction that you hadn't considered. Um, so I definitely prefer the the module approach where there's a linear storyline. But I completely agree with Dylan that uh, the player should still have choice. And if, if the quest is more open-ended that's better in my opinion. I think one of the really important things when designing a campaign is have the facts that can't be changed um, as, as, as minute as possible, but have them there. Uh, for example, Hunt for the Ripper. I know who the Ripper is. I know under, under under where they are, what they're doing. You know, I, I know that. And that's not going to change. Um, how I introduce them to the campaign isn't going to change. And the different instances where um, there are important things that have to be done or discovered are going to be there. Checkpoints A, B, C, and D. However, what the party does between those checkpoints, they always need to know that there's another checkpoint to get to, but in that time, try to give them as much flexibility as possible. So I almost call it like micro sandboxing, where you have a moment and how would you like to complete your quest? Um, Would you like to go investigate this thing this one guy said this one time? Mm -hmm. Did you want to take a a break to go do a quick side quest to get some cash, things like that? Um, If your party is feeling stifled, um, figure out what their ambitions are as, as, as players. Um, as their characters are, and, um, you know, add that to what is otherwise a railroaded story. 
But um, I think that having a definite at least outline of how you want the story to progress, even if the party is going to tackle those objectives in ways that you never thought of Mm -hmm. and potentially huge aspects of your story are going to change because the party decided to sympathize with one of your villains as opposed to (laughs) often like you Mm -hmm. expected them to be murder hobos and stuff like that, like uh, have that outline, have it be as simple as possible and then just really let your party, your your players paint that picture of what's happening for you um, because they will create some things that you never thought of and they will um, just uh, engorge your story with, um, with elements that uh, make it better and you as a DM will get credit for it and you didn't do anything other than let them do their thing. Yeah. Nick? Uh, I think I... I... And I think everybody's going to agree. I tend to go super sandbox as a DM. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my world. I have the events that are going to occur. I have what events the party is aware of, how they're made aware of it. Um, and then if the party chooses to pursue that main goal, awesome. If the party chooses that they're going to go over here and liberate this town from whatever's happening in that town um, or set a... a a fishing village on a road to independence from a kingdom, uh, unbeknownst to the fishing village's leadership, Robert. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm I'm gonna let him do that. Um, I succeeded too. He did. It was, it was <laughs> cool. um, but the uh, the the important thing that I try to do as a DM is to try and keep the main goal in focus somehow. Either after an, a mission is completed, like the side questy. Um, another piece of information becomes available or, hey, there was a guy that's been waiting to try and get in touch with the party for a week while you were out on that adventure. Um, the other thing with a sandbox is that you can have fixed events and I would encourage you to do it. There are things that are going to happen. In three weeks, X is going to happen in Y town. And if the party's not there to stop it or to prevent it, or even if they don't even know about it because they didn't ask the right questions, it still happens. Um, that feeling that the world exists and has events away from the party can lend to the livelihood of a world. Um, I am very anti-railroad. I don't like playing in railroaded campaigns for the most part, and I, I don't have a whole lot of fun running a railroaded campaign. I, I like to make sure that here's your, here's your goal, and we're going to give you enough information to start your breadcrumb trail and find it. Um, but beyond that, it's up to you. Uh, in exile, for example, my party decided to take uh, these powerful artifacts rather than giving them to one of the two people that had petitioned them to have them given. They decided to put them in the sun. <laughs> so, to be fair, the other options were assholes. You're not wrong, but that <laughs> wasn't it. Wasn't an outcome that I expected. Did they accomplish the mission? Yeah, I mean, technically, yes. Did they accomplish the mission in a way that I expected them to? No, not even close. Not not by a thousand miles was it something that I thought was going to happen. I also <laughs> want to point out, not only did we put them in the sun, but we also destroyed our memories of where we put them. <laughs> so nobody could come in and investigate what we did. Yeah, <laughs> it's really smart. Um, but I'm a big fan of the sandbox and the ability to have that freedom to make your decision and move from there rather than 
this story point A, story point B, story point C. I like how we're like a gradient almost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I much. feel like it's been like railroad sandbox. <laughs> I want to add one more thing in if I could. Yeah. Uh, one of the most important things that I think uh, is in uh, role playing is player agency. Um, the players have to feel like what they're doing matters and what their choices are matters. And if they feel like no matter what they do, something's going to go a certain way, they kind of just stop giving a crap. The illusion of choice. Thank you, Bioware. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's something you want to pay attention to. <laughs> yes. Uh, Veritas, I see you uh, a little bit late, but what's up? <laughs> uh, thank you guys uh, for coming and watching us. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show here. Uh, just a couple things before we, we jet out of here. Uh, next Tuesday, uh, we'll be streaming The Awakening at 4.30 Pacific Time. That is our 5e campaign. Stop on by. Uh, we'll play for, I, what is it, six hours? Six hours. With a break. Soon Ethereum will die. Uh, soon Ethereum may die. Who knows? They're they're on the outside of a town that just got attacked by the baddies. So we'll see what happens. Maybe Lyle will finally figure out what it means to be the needle in the haystack. Maybe. Um, other announcements. Uh, we are participating in Extra Life. Uh, what up, Chief? You're a bit late, too. Soon Ethereum might die on Tuesday. Be there. Um, we're participating in Extra Life, uh, benefiting for uh, Seattle Children's Hospital November 4th. We're going to do a, a big, long live stream, uh, D&D, D&D-related things. Um, shenanigans will be had, I'm sure. Um, so you can uh, check us out then, uh, uh, or you can donate to us uh, for that cause um, up until November 4th. Um, and through November 4th while we're streaming. Uh, please do that. Let us know. Um, and again, it is September. If you want to subscribe to us, it's half off until October 4th. Um, so second. second, October 2nd. Uh, so we would greatly appreciate that. Um, before we go, uh, we are going to uh, run in and uh, and uh, raid. Um, looks like Praetor's Rejects is the name that I have here. Um, so uh, Man Behind the Mirror, would you cue us up with a fancy, fancy raid raid? Thanks for watching. Yes, yeah, thank well, you. Guys. I, I had a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, thanks for the chat questions. We appreciate it. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that makes our job easier because then we don't have to come up with all of them. So please <laughs> give us more questions. We'd love it. Yeah. Those. Uh, you can follow us on social media at Dumpstatcha on Twitter or uh, Instagram Dumpstat Charisma. 